Before we start the show, I want to thank the thousands of you, the thousands who have read This Book Will Make You Dangerous. Many of you have told me that the book's unique way of exploring fear, confidence, and purpose has had a lasting impact, that it's much easier for you to get clarity and direction about what really matters and what you want to do in this lifetime. It's also amazing to hear that quite a few of you have read it multiple times and even bought copies for friends, so thank you again. Just in case you weren't aware, I created a free companion video course for the book. And in these videos, I walk you through the big takeaways and practices from each chapter. And I even cover some extra stuff that's not included in the book. Information on how to access the course is in newer versions of the book. And if you own an older version of the book and you don't know how to access the course, just hit me up via the contact form at triplinear.com and we'll get you all set up. And one last thing, if you're one of the thousands who have already read the book, please consider leaving an honest review on Amazon so that others can decide if it's right for them. Again, thank you so much for reading. This book will make you dangerous. And now let's start the show. You are listening to the new man beyond the macho jerk and the new age wimp. Your host is men's coach, Trip Lemire. Are you lost or do you have a clear sense of purpose? Do you seek or avoid risk? And do you feel that you're part of a group that you'd be willing to die for? Sebastian Younger is no stranger to danger. As a war reporter, he experienced intense combat in Afghanistan and nearly lost his life in other parts of the globe. He's documented his experiences in gripping films like Restrepo and Korangal, as well as books like War, Tribe, and his latest, Freedom. And oh yeah, he wrote a book a while back called The Perfect Storm, which you may have heard of too. Freedom is his most recent book where he discusses what he calls The Last Patrol. It's a long hike he did with several other veterans along the railways of America. And in the book, he describes the history of the land, what freedom really means, and the best ways to dodge authorities that are trying to arrest them for hiking next to speeding trains. Today, Sebastian and I explore why humans benefit from danger, our need to belong to a group, and what he saw in the moments just before his death. Cool. Well, I'm excited to have this this conversation to talk with you. I've been following your work for a long time. And uh, in the book that I published last year, I, I argued that most guys, when they're, when they're unaware of whatever purpose is in their life, then they tend to default without realizing that seeking comfort, that seeking certainty, that seeking acceptance or worthiness is what drives them in their day-to-day uh, choices and, and actions. And so I'm looking at your work and I'm looking at, you know, the path that you've had in life. And there's been a consistent theme of danger, of, of risk, of uncertainty. And, and so I'm, I want to see if we can draw out some of the benefits of leaning into that, but then also see if we can, you know, look at some of the shadow elements of that as well. So let's just start there. Like, how does, how does a certain level of danger benefit our lives? Well, if you want to, among other things, look at, people, humans, uh, through an anthropological lens, right? So we evolved, uh, we evolved to live in groups of 30, 40, 50 people in a challenging and, and sometimes very dangerous environment. Uh, that's the human norm 
for a couple hundred thousand years, right? And that changed, uh, that started to change 10,000 years ago with the advent of agriculture, where life went from being um, highly mobile and very risky to being um, sedentary and involved a lot of hard, repetitive, boring work and not a lot of danger. But we are wired to be mobile and to face danger, and to face danger in groups. Humans die alone in nature almost immediately. We survive and we even thrive because we function in groups. So, you know, you can just take it as a given that things that feel good are probably adaptive in our human evolution. They're probably good. Things that feel good are usually good for us. If you're hungry, it feels good to eat. Um, sex feels good. It gets us to procreate, et cetera. Uh, so what feels good? Uh, you know, a sense of stability and security and safety definitely feels good, particularly when you yourself have created those conditions. But the problem with modern society is that the, the, the daily survival tasks that, that confronted most humans for most of human history, those daily survival tasks of finding shelter and safety and food, uh, and you did those with your close your, with your survival group, those things have basic, basically been outsourced to a, a mass mechanized society. You actually don't, can't really claim responsibility for the fact that you're alive on the planet. You had food to eat today, you had shelter, you have safety not through any, anything that you yourself did. You went to work for eight hours, that's what you did. And of course there's a distant connection, but in an immediate human sense, you, you are unconnected from the things that keep you alive. That, those have been outsourced for most people. And, and I think that is a source of real dissatisfaction. You don't know if you're competent. You don't know if you're skilled at being alive. You have no idea. You're punching a clock and you come home after eight hours and someone gives you some money and you use the money to get all the things you need, right? And that makes sense in a mass society, but it doesn't make a lot of human sense. And I'm not saying there's even any way to go back. I'm not saying we should do things differently, but it's helpful to point out the source of our discontent. So when people go find challenges, challenges for themselves, things that are scary or dangerous or just miserable, like backpacking in the rain or whatever, um, one of the things they're doing is rediscovering their sense of competence as a human being, as an, as an animal in the natural world. And, you know, the final piece of it, I think, is that invariably in our, in our evolutionary history, dangers have been faced in the context of a group. <clears throat> um, and one, one great way of defining what your survival group is, what your, quote, tribe is, one great way of defining it is the idea, what happens to you will also happen to me. They're the same thing. I'm not going to let anything happen to you that I'm not willing to also engage with, be it the attack of the lion or we don't have enough food or what have you. What happens to you happens to me. That's the group. When you feel that way about others, other people, that's your survival group. And when you confront dangers and tasks in the context of that group, it's highly adaptive in evolutionary terms but it's unbelievably meaningful and um, almost intoxicating as, as an experience. And that's one of the reasons you get soldiers who want to go back to war. You know, you know, whatever the, quote, thrill of combat may be, you know, much more profound sense, there's the deep sense of meaning and satisfaction uh, and psychic comfort that comes from being part of a survival group where you have this thought in your mind, what happens to you happens to me, brother. Here we are together. That's an intoxicating feeling. I, I just want to unpack this a little bit because I can imagine the guy that's out there that's feeling unfulfilled in his work, he might think he needs more of whatever he's in. 
I must need more money. I must need more status. I must need more comfort, more of these things. And what you're saying is we, we actually might want to consider stripping some of this away and getting more in contact where we are directly pulling the levers of our own existence and seeing that when I do this, I get to exist. When I do this, I get to survive. And when I do this and I do this with others, I get to feel more of the, these deep primitive bonds, these deep primitive needs that I have being fulfilled. And so instead of more and more and more and isolating myself at the top of that hill, we might want to look backwards. It's not a regressive thing, but it is just acknowledging more of that primitive aspect of who we are, that thing that got us to this point. Yeah, a- absolutely. I mean, we have genetically changed or biologically changed hardly at all since agriculture was invented 10,000 years ago. We are walking around in the bodies and with the minds of hunter-gatherers. Uh, uh, um, and, and, uh, and, and we've existed for 200,000 years in that form. So what we were adapted to in that environment is still what we're adapted to. And so when people go back, you know, backpacking in the Bob Marshall wilderness, um, I mean, it might be straight up miserable, right? I mean, living outside is hard. It's uncomfortable. It's cold. You, get, you know, it rains. There are grizzly bears, whatever. There's all kinds of reasons not to do it. I think what's going on, and I'm talking about myself, right? I mean, I've spent a lot of time uh, on foot in wild areas at fending for myself. And, and you know, one of the things that's going on is, is that you're demonstrating your own competency. And even if it's just for a long weekend. And, but I'll also note that doing that by yourself is deeply unsettling. You know, when, when that kind of experience really becomes gratifying is when you're doing it with one or one other or a group of people. And, you know, among other things, no one sleeps very well at night when they're alone in the woods, right? I mean, because when you're out, you're out, you're very vulnerable. And the bigger the group you're in, the more soundly you can sleep. And that sort of co-sleeping in a, in a dangerous environment in any wild area is potentially a dangerous environment. That kind of co-sleeping is what we're designed for. So when you go out into the wilderness or whatever it may be with a group of close friends that you are um, utterly allied with, right? That you will, you will, um, you know, what happens to you happens to me, that kind of group. You are reenacting our human evolution basically as, as is a platoon in combat doing the same thing. And that is, is deeply gratifying. And, you know, I think it's great to have a high paid job in Silicon Valley, you know, whatever. Um, if that feels unsatisfying, that's not a surprise, right? The, the statistics show us, the data shows us that as affluence goes up in society, suicide and depression rates go up, not down. I mean, modern affluent Western society has some of the highest rates of suicide, depression, addiction, anxiety ever in human history, right? So clearly, for all the amazing benefits of an affluent technology-driven society, amazing benefits, uh, for all of those benefits, there is a real uh, mental health cost for the population uh, on uh, as a whole. It's like we're dry, It's like we're taking a certain amount of nutrition out of our diet, and we're expecting ourselves to then thrive and, and get stronger without that element or without that 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 bit of nutrition that that really helps us thrive in that sense. Yeah, and you know, part of the nutrition that we need. As humans, you know, humans are but social. We're social primates. We need other people. The worst thing you can do to someone is put them in solitary confinement in prison, right? And when uh, they're surrounded by murderers and rapists, that, like that's yeah, their peer yeah. group, right? Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. But you need community of whatever yeah. sort. It doesn't matter. You need humans need community, and um, people who who live alone do very very poorly health wise and psychologically. It's extremely hard on people, right? So what does affluence do? It allows um, 
it allows us to, it outsources the, 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 the survival tasks, right? It allows us to survive without enlisting the aid of other people in our community. You don't need to belong to a group, a community group, to survive anymore, right? For most people in modern Western society. You, you earn enough at your job to pay for the things you need, and you actually don't need the family that lives next door to you uh, or above you in the apartment building or whatever. And um, th that is a kind of liberation, right, from the, from the sort of mores of the community, but there's a real loss there. And one of the things that makes people feel really good is being a, a good soldier, a good citizen in a small community group uh, that, that needs you, right? That kind of community participation makes people feel very, very good. And so what you have, this sort of weird irony, is that when um, disasters hit, uh, uh, when there's a disaster, or even say the Blitz of London, right, when the, the German Air Force was bombing London almost every night for six straight months, they lost 30,000 civilians in London during the, those bombing raids, right? Um, what happened? Mental health improved. Weirdly, like the authorities, English authorities expected mental health to decline, but in fact, admissions to psych wards went down during the blitz because all of a sudden people understood that they were needed by their community. And the city was in rubble and they were pulling wounded people out of the rubble and, you know, et cetera. And the gun, anti-aircraft guns were going off all night trying to shoot down the German planes. And as one woman said, I read an oral history of the blitz, right? And this young one uh, one woman in London said, you know, had the Germans attacked on, on foot, we all, meaning the citizenry of London, we all would have gone down to the beaches of, of the Thames. We all would have gone down to the beaches with broken bottles to fight them if we needed to. There was that kind of civic unity. And so what happened after the war? People missed the Blitz. There are people in London who survived the Blitz and they missed those days of incredible meaning and intensity and participation in their group, in their survival group. And so that's where you get people looking back on the terrible hurricane Katrina. I know people in Mississippi who say that the aftermath of Katrina were some of the best days of their lives right. because they were, they were needed. Yeah, I, 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 I can experience that. I can say that too. Our house got really damaged by a hurricane a few years ago. I caught myself in these moments where I was helping neighbors with trees down everywhere. And I was like, this is actually really enjoyable. My house is fucked. I got two feet of water in my bedroom. And it's like, why, why is there something rewarding about being in this circumstance, even though, you know, it was less fun as, as it went on. But it was after the point where we stopped helping each other in that way. And I wonder if this is why we tend to create apocalyptic views for our tribe. Like we always need something to organize around, whether it's on the progressive left and, you know, the climate is going to kill us all, or maybe more on the right side of things. And we don't necessarily need to get into the politics of this, but, but you know, those people are going to take away what we think of as our, as our country and our, and our values and, and, and take control of us in that way. Is this one of the reasons we need something to fear in order to bond us in that way? Well, I mean, yeah, in a sense, like there, if there is no enemy, <clears throat> there is a much less compelling reason to or to, to, to organize. You know, I mean, when you organize a group, you're giving up some of your selfhood. You're giving up some of your autonomy for the, 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 the group project, the, 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 the group priorities. Right. And that feels good to do that if there's a reason to do it. <clears throat> when it's simply compelled by the group and there's no obvious reason to do it. It doesn't feel good. It feels like the group is just taking away 
your individuality. I mean, that was one of the problems with communism. I mean, communism worked great when there was an enemy, right? But, um, you know, after the, after the First World War and then after the Second World War, it, you know, eventually the communist system floundered in the Soviet Union because, they, you know, they didn't, the, the Germans weren't invading, right? I mean, the, you know, I mean, the, the, the Russians repelled the German army, right? They lost something like 20 million people, but they did it, right? And after the war, there wasn't an enemy. And so, you know, communism, and I know people who grew up under communism in Eastern Europe, and it had some real benefits, uh, including nationalized healthcare that worked extremely well and, and very, very good education. Um, but this sort of compulsory servitude to the group does not feel good unless there's an enemy. And so what you have in America where there is no plausible enemy, right? I mean, the Chinese are not going to invade the beaches of California. I'm sorry. You know, that may be in a sci-fi, you know, maybe in a movie, but not, not in real life. And we all know that, you know, I mean, the most they can touch us and it was bad enough was Al-Qaeda on 9-11. But that wasn't an invasion of this country. That was a terrible, terrible tragedy. And, uh, and so if you don't have an enemy, it's, it's harder to rally your base. And so what both political parties do and I think the right has done it particularly well, and in, and in some ways, a very dam in damaging ways. Um, they have they, they politically political parties try to convince you that the other party is the enemy. That half of America, the other half of America, if you're a Democrat, the other half of America is Republican. That they are the enemy of this nation, and of course, the Republicans do the same thing. That the left wing are actually some weird sort of insurgent um, force that's going to take over America. Wouldn't take over America. It's half of America. It's not taking over anything. It's half their country. What are you right. talking about? What are, both, what, what are both sides? What are you all talking about? This is us, right? So creating an enemy, allow, it, it allows people to have their autonomy taken away uh, for the group endeavor without them objecting to it. You know, so those people on January 6th, that were sort of rallying and stormed the Capitol, they never ever would have allowed the government or anyone to make them work in a collective way like that to pick up litter in parks, right? They never would have been allowed themselves to have been forced to spend their day doing something else. But because they had an enemy, they were willingly incorporated into a group that arguably was not very good to good for them. A lot of them were going to jail, right? Like so. That, that creation of an enemy is extremely useful in, group, in group, group solidarity. You talk about freedom in this, in your new book, which is you know, called Freedom. But what was amazing is the, these paradoxes, right? This, that there are these, the more, these kind of weird senses of freedom, the more freedom you have, essentially the more obedience you're required to give. And, and I think that, you know, some people, and maybe this is where we can draw your definition of freedom, because I think for a lot of people, depending on their kind of altitude of consciousness or awareness, it's don't tell me what to do. Nobody can tell me what to do. That's freedom. Or freedom is this higher ideal that maybe the founding fathers had in mind when they came through and, and wrote those documents. And so it seems like we've got all these different views of what freedom is. And, and then even the, this, this book is written from the backdrop of illegally walking on train tracks, you know, and being warned multiple times to get off the tracks because the cops are coming. And so it's like, no, we're going to, we're going to, uh, we're going to own our freedom to walk on these tracks. And so it's this really interesting thing to define what freedom is. And yet people are talking about laying down their lives for it or sacrificing for it all the time, but we can't really put a finger on it. How do, how do you describe it? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, it's a complicated tangle of ideas. So basically Humans don't survive by themselves. They only survive because they're part of a group, right? 
So your freedom from dying in the in the wilderness, your freedom uh, in the sense of having safety, uh, being able to live your life, your freedom comes from the fact that you're part of a group that will help protect you and you will help protect it, right? There's a reciprocal agreement for all the individuals in the group, whether that be 330 million people in this country or a uh, hunter-gatherer survival group of 30 or 40, 50, 50 there's, a, there's a reciprocal agreement that we're all in this together. So once you're part of a group, you owe the, you, you owe the group a, a contribution. You, you, the group has the right to expect things from you. So you live in America. You're an American citizen. You are not free to run a red light. You are not free to drive on the left-hand side of the road. You can say you're free all day long, but the truth is, if you do those things, you might kill somebody, and if a cop catches you, you will be arrested, or at least fined, right? And, and, and as well you should be, because the individual does not have the right to jeopardize the group welfare. That is not one of the things that any individual in any group has the right to do, right? And um, you don't have the right to disadvantage other people. You can't even cut the line at the post office. You're not even free to do that. There's no law against cutting the line at the post office, but peer pre pressure is such that, that um, you know, cold-blooded murderers uh, who show up at the post office don't dare cut the line because some old lady's going to yell at them, right? <laughs> and they get in the back of the line. You are not free to do it in any, uh, in any sort of human sense. And so basically, the, 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 what I was looking at the American frontier in, in, in what was the American frontier in Pennsylvania in the 1700s. Very, very dangerous place to go. The wilderness beckoned. The, the colonies were sort of bursting at the seams. A lot of very poor, disenfranchised people, economically disenfranchised people, went through the Juniata River Gap and westwards along the Juniata River into Pennsylvania, into, you know, quote, Indian territory, right? It was completely wide open, no government control. They were as free as could be, except that they were in a lot of danger. And they were had escaped the strictures of the colonial government and later the American government but what they found themselves in a situation was that in order to survive, they needed to collaborate with their neighbors in a kind of collective defense. That meant that every adult male, an adult meant 14 and over, age 14 and over was an adult. Every adult male had to be willing to carry a gun, carry a rifle and a scalping knife and a tomahawk at all times and be ready to defend the community during these Indian raids, these Indian wars. And um, if you were not willing to lay down your life to defend the community, you were not welcome in the community. You can go, you can move somewhere else, right? Clearly not freedom uh, in, in, in the sense that, that people refer to it now. That was required because they were all in so much danger. So basically the point is there is no way to have complete safety and complete freedom at the same time. If you live in a group and you get your safety from that group, you, to some degree, have to do what the group tells you to do, or you can move somewhere else. It seems like we're in a, in a stage of our development as a country and as a society where we've lost touch with that. It comes back to the first part of the conversation where we've removed ourselves from the immediacy of that danger. I want to read one of the quotes from the, from the book here, which is, for most of history, freedom had to be suffered for it not died for, and that raised its value to something sacred. But today, many believe that any sacrifice at all rationing water during a drought is government tyranny. That is literally infantile. Only children owe nothing. It seems that we've transitioned above and beyond where we don't know what it means to really be 
in danger or to rely on the group. We're take, are we taking this structure, the, the, the ladder that we're on, are we taking the steps below it for granted? Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think we all do. I think I do, too. You know, I mean, I ate breakfast this morning. I didn't grow or collect or hunt the things I, I ate, right? Like, I didn't think about it. Um, we're, you know, we're all part of a huge supply chain, a supply chain that if it were not managed and regulated by a some kind of overarching federal authority would collapse. Um, and we know what the supply chain in Somalia looks like and Afghanistan looks like. It's extremely localized. It's subject to a black market economy and to price gouging and uh, uh, to corruption and checkpoints and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, you want a system that works as well as this does, and it does because it's a federal government looking out over the whole thing. And what, you know, you can't accrue the benefits of being part of that system and then reject its authority and say, okay, well, manage the supply chain for me so I have plenty of cheap gasoline. But don't you dare come after me and tell me that I can't dump uranium in the drinking water if I'm a corporation. Or don't you dare tell me I have to wear a mask to protect the public health. I mean, you can't have it both ways. If you accept the help of the federal government and state government, then uh, you have to abide by its, uh, by its demands. And if the demands are unreasonable, there is recourse, right? In democracy, there's recourse. You can go to the courts, let the courts decide. You can go to the polling booth and vote the bastards out, right? But there is recourse. The one thing you cannot resort to in a democracy is violence. That's the one thing that is, when you resort to violence in a democracy, you're actually creating the opposite of a democracy. A democracy was designed to avoid violence as a way of reaching decisions, of making choices, right? That, that's the point of democracy is avoiding violence. And the, the um, Founding fathers who who wrote those documents, right? That they that gave us our independence from from England and uh, gave us the Constitution and Bill of Rights. You know, they were coming from a situation, medieval, basically medieval Europe, where a ruling elite of royals and noblemen um, completely controlled a society that was, uh, you know, essentially serfs, and they had no rights, and they worked for very little economic benefit in a system that grossly advantaged the ruling elite, and they had no recourse. You couldn't, you couldn't sue the king. He'd have you beheaded, right? Like, you, you couldn't vote him out. It, there was no, you, you, were, you were subject to the whim of the royalty. And so with the, when the American Revolution came along, they weren't objecting to the tyranny of government. They were objecting to the tyranny of the royalty, the tyranny of the middle of the, of the feudal system, right? And they were creating government where the people in the government had were subject to the same laws that everyone everyone else was subject to, right? Um, the kings and queens of England and of Europe were not subject to the same laws. They were not accountable, uh, and and so that was the brilliance of the uh, of those documents is that these very very powerful white men, very powerful people in colonial society, wrote documents that made themselves, the writers of the Constitution, the Bill of Rights, made themselves subject to the same laws that everyone else was subject to. And it may be the first time in human history that very, very powerful people made it clear that they served the populace rather than the populace served them. And that is what was in some ways revolutionary about that moment in history. So again, we're back to this group, right? There's an identity. We, the people, right? We are these people. We're not, we're not under the domain of this tyranny. Um, 
And within this group, we don't commit violence upon ourselves, right? That's not okay to, to settle things in that way. You will have consequences for that. And then in the book, one of the things I read, one of your quotes was the freest people are the most warlike. How do we, how do we turn that corner then? How, do, how is it that we become the most warlike as well? Are we not the freest people or how are you, how are you describing that? What did you mean by that quote? Yeah. So, you know, I, I was looking at, at human history, the long, tragic, uh, painful era, uh, uh, story of human history. And, and um, the, you know, there was a lot of warfare and the, the most immediate threat to one's freedom as, as a group was that an enemy would kill, attack and kill and enslave you, right? That was commonplace. And, um, you know, in, in through the 20, 20th century, uh, I mean, that, you know, look what happened in Rwanda, a million people, you know, basically put to the sword. And um, that's a radical loss of freedom by, by that group that was tyrannized. Um, so, uh, you know, I looked, for example, at the Yamnaya. They were a nomadic group 5,000 years ago that invaded the Iberian Peninsula. They, they, they traveled in all-male groups. They fought on horse-drawn chariots when the horse was new to human society. You know, and basically, they were sort of the first motorcycle gang, right? And they, they cruised through Europe, and they, they took over the Iberian Peninsula, what's now Spain and Portugal. And within 100 years, they killed all of the men in Iberia, all of them and clearly mated with the women. And modern Spaniards have Yamnaya DNA in them and no DNA from Neolithic era males of, of that area. And so basically, if, if you couldn't defend yourself against an attack, you weren't gonna be free for very long. And so the, the societies where freedom, the freedom was, was the most protected were societies that were either able to outrun um, or, or defend themselves against an enemy. And, um, but of course, what happens is if you're well-organized enough, martial enough to defend yourself against a powerful enemy, you are also well-armed enough, well-organized enough for a, um, an unfair leader to oppress his own people. So if you look at the sort of totalitarian states, the autocracies in the modern era, Saddam Hussein in Iraq had a fearsome army. Right. But one of the things he did with the security apparatus was also oppress his own people. He could defend his borders, you know, until it came to the United States, which is basically an invincible force in that sense. But uh, but he could. But he, but he also used that military to oppress his own people. So the sort of trick for human freedom is being well armed enough to repel invaders. But fair enough, egalitarian enough within your own society to not have abusive rulers um, oppress their own people, oppress you. That is the trick. And democracy, basically, yeah, been a democracy was a was a was a way to sort of like square that circle. Like, how do we be, you know, like well organized enough to defend ourselves, but have norms and rules uh, in place so that rulers can't abuse us. Kings and queens can't abuse us. We govern ourselves, and we if we don't like the people that govern us, we vote them out, and we try someone else. Okay. There's a, there's a, there's a big proponent of this. I'm a, I'm a fan of integral theory. I'm a fan of, uh, something created by Don Beck called spiral dynamics. And it's essentially that we go through value memes as we go, get older. And so we move from a magical explanation of the world into more of an egocentric, uh, explanation of the world. This is where we see the warlords and the Saddam Husseins and the thugs, the drug thugs and, and, you know, the warlords in Afghanistan, whatever it might be. 
And so we will follow that person, but we don't have a national identity. It's us, but it's not all of us. And this move from us to all of us is that what the, is that difficult move from being a teenager into, okay, I am part of society now. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'm going to, yeah. I'm going to put button up my shirt and my pants. Like I'm going to, you know, shower and I'm going to get out there into society. And it seems, it seems like there's this movement as we talk about moving into, into democracy where that we go from somebody telling us what they can, what we can do and what we can't do, essentially that authoritarian movement or me wanting to then do that to them and oppress them. I'm going to have it my way all the time. I'm going to walk right to the front of the line, whatever that might be. And into that orderly sense of we're in this together. We work together. I give up for you. You give up for me. And it seems like that transition from that egocentric into that more kind of nationalistic or conventional sense of this is our how our society works is the most painful part. And it's where a lot of young men get lost. It's why they have a difficult time. They don't go through a rite of passage to go from that young person into that adult. And I'm curious for you that has been around so many young men that have now found them inside the institution of the military, trying to find this order, trying to find this, what does it all mean and even in your own life, seeking something, seeking like, am I a man? I'm, I'm no longer a boy. What if we, I, I, I just see this parallel track here, the development of our country, as you're describing, but also the development of ourselves as men. Uh, I'll just pause here to see if we're, if I've lost you so far or if we're still on track. Oh, I'm, I gotcha. Um, so if you're in a sort of survival group and a modern example would be um, a firehouse, a fireman, right? Um, or a platoon in combat. Um, and, you know, in some ways, maybe even ER nurses, I, I just, uh, talked to Jim Patter, James Patterson, who has a wonderful book, um, about, uh, with a co-author about, uh, about frontline, you know, as a frontline health, healthcare professionals, you know, in ERs. And they're, they're also in some ways, at least psychologically speaking, a kind of survival group as well. Mm -hmm. Um, when you're in that kind of situation, it's very, very clear that the group needs you. Right. I mean, a platoon is 30 men, 40 men. Right. I mean, a combat platoon, it was all men. The, the platoon I was with was all men. You know, you, you know, the, the, the 240 gunner, the radio guy, the 240 gunner doesn't do his job and everyone's lives are in danger. Right. And it's very clear to these 19 year old guys like, wow, they need me. I better step up. I don't matter. What happens to you happens to me. I don't matter. I'm going to make sure the group's OK. And uh, they're all going to do the same thing. And so we're all going to be OK. That's the that's what it means. That's the group contract. Right. It's ancient. It's human and it's ancient and it feels good. So what happens in modern society? It's quite clear that the group that you're in. I mean, what is the group? Right. I, I'm, you know, I'm I'm an American. I live in America. I got, the, uh, you know, neighborhoods don't are, are and the word neighborhoods, a figure of speech like neighborhoods don't need each other in a sense. Right. There's cops, there's the garbage collector, you know, like whatever. All those things have been sort of like outsourced. So what are you part of? You're part of this country. The country clearly doesn't need you, right? Uh, if you disappeared, it'd be fine. If you didn't do your job, it would be fine. If you sort of fraudulently, fraudulently claim disability so that you can get two thirds of a paycheck and not have to go to work, the country's going to survive. Like there's no, you can be a free rider on that system and no one cares, no one knows. So you don't feel valued because you're not valued. You actually don't have, you're not necessary for survival, right? That is demoralizing. It's dismal. So. When you get, um, you know, I think that, that, that particularly for men, like there is this sort of question of, and, and societies don't quite do the same thing with women, right? Like there, as, as Margaret Mead, the wonderful anthropologist said, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but she said, 
all around the world, societies, she was talking about, quote, primitive societies. She studied um, sort of small scale organic societies uh, in, in, in the Pacific, for example. And she said all, all over the world, societies define women biologically. They start menstruating when they're capable of getting pregnant. You're a woman, right? And you don't need to prove you don't need to prove that you're worthy of womanhood. Your body is demonstrating that you're there, whether you're whether you're ready or not. You're there, right? There is no equivalent uh, demonstrable proof for men, right? I mean, they grow a beard or whatever, but but basically, that she what Margaret Mead said is that the definition of of man, as opposed to just adult male different thing the definition of man being a man in society meaning ready and willing to share the burdens of survival uh to put yourself last uh if need be if there's a, a threat or a danger put your own interests last like that's our definition of manhood um that that um that that is uh the definition is societal it's in the eye of the beholder you have to prove it you have to prove you're a man it doesn't just happen naturally you have to go out and demonstrate it. And that's why the initi initiation rites for boys are often so dangerous and, 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 and painful, even sort of forms of torture. You got to show you're willing to suffer to be considered a man. And you're not going to be able to get married until you're considered a man. And so are you willing to go through this like brutal, brutal, brutal initiation rite? They don't really do that with girls um, in the same way to prove that they're women. And so what do you have in this society? The same thing, women, uh, uh, whether it's a blessing or a curse, I don't know, but they are, um, they are seen to reach maturity when they start menstruating, right? And, and, and you, you, no, one, no one would accuse a 30-year-old woman of sort of like not being an adult, not being mature, right? You're 30, you could get pregnant, you, whatever. Your, your, your status as an adult is not in question. Uh, but there's lots of 30-year-old males who are thought to maybe not really be men because they haven't demonstrated their worthiness. And that, and I don't know how you demonstrate your worthiness in this society. There's no, there's no, there's no challenge. I mean, there's no threat. There's no enemies. There's no, there's nothing to, sh I mean, I remember when I was 16, I was like, why, why can't something dangerous happen in my town? I lived in a quiet little suburb, right? And I, as I was 16 and I wanted to like show that I was a badass, but how do you show you're a badass in the suburbs? Right. I was like, no, there's no rebels are going to invade Belmont, right? Like, I mean, there might be a breakdance competition. You might have to go battle somebody at the skating rink or something. Right, exactly. <laughs> when there's no threat to the community, like maybe there'll be a bank robbery and I can do something heroic, or maybe we'll get hit hit by a tornado. But there's no tornadoes in the East Coast. I'm like, what? It's what's it going to take to give me an opportunity to show that I want to act bravely on behalf of the community? It never happens. And I think that's deeply frustrating to young men in this society. And I think often they just like start shrugging like, oh, well, OK, well, I'll just sort of muddle through my life. and I don't have to prove anything to anybody. I love the, the, the frame you're creating here, because on women, I, I know women that if they they've been un unable to have a child and they really want to have a child, there is this existential thing that happens. Right. And, and then to meet men that are also feel, feeling this existential thing, they're 60 year old boys and they've created a lot of wealth and, but if they don't feel worthy, they don't feel that they have anything of, of, of real value. I've also, I wonder if it's about worthiness, but also just a relationship to death in general, because there's, there's a lot of folks that have been insulated from that aspect of life. And there's a curiosity that if you haven't been around death or you haven't experienced death, you haven't had death in some way come into your life and punch you in the teeth that 
you really don't know where the boundaries are. Everything we've talked about here, survival, there's always this presence of death in, as we talk about men. And so is it, I wonder if it's really about competence or is it really just knowing and appreciating that death is always with us? Yeah, I mean, I think that our society has removed death from our daily reality. So, you know, we eat meat, but we don't see the cow slaughter. Uh, people die, but they die in ICUs and we don't, you don't watch that process. I mean, eventually we encounter it, but, you know, that's not part of childhood or adolescence usually is to encounter the death of people we love. I mean, encounter it, maybe grandpa dies, but you might, you might not, you probably won't watch the process, right? And, you know, and, and, and for most of human history, Starting at very young ages, children watched people die. People they loved expire. They got old and they died, right? And animals were killed. Animals were killed. Regularly. Regularly, yeah. and then cut up and eaten, right? Like death was abs- was part of part of life. And in this society, you know, I think you can sort of like teenagers, I think I'm trying to remember my state of mind. When I, but I was like, on some level, I think I literally didn't think I was going to die when I was a teenager in my early 20s. I was just like, I don't, I don't think I really believe that. Right. And then a little later, you're like, you kind of know you're going to die. You admit it, but you don't live as if you were going to die. You still live life as if you're immortal. And then eventually you realize you're going to die and you start living your life with the knowledge that you are going to die. And that's when life really gets meaningful. I mean, that's when you really are living life. And I would say up until that moment, you're having an adventure. And the adventure stops and really living life in a, in a deeply meaningful way um, starts when you know you're going to die and you're going to live in accordance with that knowledge. And that's why there are people who are 20 years old who have had cancer or who were in combat who are already there. They are already at that place of knowing death and living accordingly. You don't have to be 50 or 60. Um, you can, you can be 20. Unfortunately or unfortunately, you can be 20 and live with that knowledge. And I don't think it needs to be doom and gloom, but I, I, you know, the early experiences that I had with death in my life, it snapped me into shape. Like I, there was no, I couldn't give a shit about other things that were happening at high school. I couldn't be outraged by (laughs) what this, this drama or whatever, when you have that backstop of there's death, I've been around that. I've been up close to that. It, there's a finality to that. That person's not coming back. If you've never had that experience in your life or it's abstract, then you will get it, it infuriated because Amazon's down for a day or your package is going to be late. Who gives a shit, right? But you, you miss that part. It keeps us in that infantile state that you describe. Um, I'm curious for you, when you were a younger man, we've been talking about danger and being on the other side of it from this perspective and having it. But what was the draw for you? You started to touch on it a little bit, but were you proving yourself? Or I want to know more about what's going on there because I think whether we're young or not, there might be people that are that are still struggling to find that thing. But you went into some really fucking dangerous stuff uh, in order. What were you searching for? What was going on? Well, I grew up in a very quiet, safe suburb, and I came out of that experience. And I had a great education, um, and um, you know that was that was paid for, right? I mean, I got a free ride. I mean, I, I was a very, very lucky young person, and um, I came out of that thinking that I hadn't really demonstrated my own competence, right? And I was going into the wilderness a lot. I was going backpacking. Man, I was sort of testing myself in different ways, but I. I just, I didn't feel like a man. And I know that sounds sort of old school and outdated and maybe even sexist, but I'm speaking as a male 
um, I didn't have a sense of my own adult maleness that I hadn't crossed over a threshold into maturity yet. And, you know, women experience that in different ways that I, that I wouldn't know about. So I'm not, I, I can't really comment on it, but, but for men, for me, I didn't feel like a man and being a man seemed like it involved demonstrating your selflessness in some way and demonstrating some kind of courage in the face of danger and some kind of stoicism in the face of hardship. And until you've done that, and it's not going to happen in a safe, quiet suburb like Belmont, Massachusetts, lovely town, but you're not going to get tested like that. Like, okay, I'm going to have to go out and find it. Does that make me a very privileged part of humanity? Absolutely. But I was trying to do something that I felt was psychologically necessary. Um, and, and, and so the first thing I did is, uh, uh, I stumbled into, thank God, I stumbled into working as a, as a, as a high climber for tree companies. So I was working 50, 60, 70, 80, hundred feet in the air, hanging on a rope with a chainsaw, taking trees down in pieces. Right. And my survival, my safety was completely dependent on me not screwing up. You make a mistake with a chainsaw 90 feet in the air. And uh, there's a good chance you're not going to survive it. On the plus side, there's no random element up there, right? It's like chess. You, you lose a game of chess because you made bad moves, not because you rolled the dice wrong, right? There's no rolling the dice wrong in the top of a tree. If you get killed up there, it's because you screwed up. That means it's in your control. So just do not screw up, right? So, so I love that sort of rarefied atmosphere of like complete agency over my fate. That was amazing, right? And the stakes are high. You fall 90 feet, you're dead. You fall 20 feet, you might be dead, right? So I did screw up once. I hit the back of my leg with a chainsaw. I laid open my Achilles. Uh, it was intact, but there I was looking at it. And I turned the saw off and rappelled down to the ground. And my my crew took me to the hospital. And the Novocaine shot hurt like hell. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, it was pretty upsetting, painful experience. But, you know, I was like, that's what happens. You You screw up, you pay, right? So then the next thing I did, does that help in terms of my sense of, for lack of a better word, sense of manhood, that helped. Um, and, and, but then the next thing was, you know, tree work's great. It's not very meaningful in the sense that, I, you know, I, I, wanted a, I wanted a big life, right? I wanted a life that involved the world, not just residential tree work around Boston. And uh, so I decided I'm trying a war reporter. I, you know, I had no idea what that how to do that. Like I had no connections. I, you know, I was starting from zero, but like a lot of young people, I went, I uh, flew to, to Bosnia, uh, to Zagreb in Croatia. And then eventually in Sarajevo, it was, there was a civil war. It was in 1993, way before the U S was involved in the peacekeeping. It was an active civil war. Sarajevo was under siege. They were getting shelled and shot at every day. Um, 20% of that, of that city was killed or wounded. Children included, 20% of the population was killed or wounded in that siege. And everyone else had the good, good fortune to survive, but starved for three years. That's the city I went into. And I started to get a sense of myself as a man in that environment. And um, I, it feels a little tasteless to sort of uh, appear to use someone else's tragedy as a trajectory towards maturity. But I'm just trying to be really honest here. And, and that was a step for me on that path. And it, eventually it worked. I mean, it, it didn't happen overnight, but eventually I came out of my wartime experiences uh, feeling like a competent adult man. And, and eventually I was lucky enough to have children. And now as a father, I really feel that way. I mean, now the, that was the last piece of the puzzle. And now, you know, talk about, you know, you have to put yourself last and be selfless and all that. That's parenthood, you know, for both sexes, that's parenthood. Mm -hmm. When you look back on that period now, 
do you still see it as needing to prove that you were a man or was, was it a different piece for you? I mean, you know, it's not, you know, the, the phrase prove you were a man sounds so outdated, but it's a kind of shorthand for, um, the sense of comp I mean, the, 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 the sexes, I know I'll get in trouble for this, but the sexes are different. They're different in many wonderful ways, biologically, psychologically, emotionally, hormonally, culturally, like in every conceivable way, they are very, or sl at least slightly different. And the, the, the sense of self, the sense of competency, um, the sense of, um, sort of like your, 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 your unswerving identity. This is who I am. This is what I will do for you, like that sense uh, is different for men than it is for women. There's there's quite a bit of overlap, but there's also parts of it that are quite different and that obviously correspond to our diff differing biologies. And so that sense of, okay, now I can not, I mean, not only do other people see me as an adult, it's easy to fool people, right? Uh, can't fool yourself. I now see myself as an adult. Uh, and, and, and that, that piece of it, that self-knowledge that I no longer doubted my own maturity, that I'd never, and I'd stopped questioning whether I deserved the good things in my life. Um, uh, you know, the idea that I might not deserve them because I hadn't demonstrated my worthiness yet. That horrible question, which is an important question to ask yourself when you're 16 or 20 or 20, whatever. That awful question had gone away because I'd answered that question. And then now I, yes, I do deserve the good things in life. I've proved my worthiness. I've proved that I can be selfless. I can put others first. Um, and I am ready for the responsibilities and the challenges and the, um, and, and the triumphs of manhood, of adulthood. Um, it took a while. I would say in most traditional societies, it doesn't take a while. It can't take a while. They are living on a sort of razor's edge. And you can't take 20 years to get something done. You got to transition the young people from adolescence to adulthood, male or female. You got to transition them pretty, pretty quickly, you know, but, you know, by 20, by age 20, I mean, look, the, I mean, I was, I was in, my family and I were in, um, in Liberia a couple of years ago, and we were in a very, very small village, uh, in the, in the highlands in Northern Liberia. And, uh, and very isolated village. And the during the day, the adult population worked in the fields. And these were fields that were interwoven in the sort of jungle area. They didn't look like fields to our Western sense, right? They were, I think it was called Swidden ag Agriculture. And, uh, uh, you know, the entire village was made of local materials. I mean, wood and thatch and extraordinary place, about 100 people. Um, everyone over age six worked. The six-year-olds, the five-year-olds, the four-year-olds took care of the younger children in the village during the day. And over age, so the six-year-olds were the babysitters, the seven-year-olds worked in the fields with their parents. And the infants were strapped to their mother's backs. That is a very, very ancient human arrangement. In the village we were in, there was a five-year-old girl who was pounding rice into flour during the day for when everyone came back, right? Um, everyone participates. That idea of, of group participation, even by children, group participation is completely lost in this society. And again, there's a wonderful liberation of the individual from the tasks of the, from communal tasks. It's a real liberation, right? But there's also a real loss there. 
You don't know what you belong to. You don't know if you're needed. You don't know what your value is. And so it took me in this modern society a very long time to answer those questions. And I have. Well, I imagine you're also at the stage of your life where you've been going through it, which is kind of who am I now? You know, I'm, I'm no longer in my 20s answering that question. You're <clears throat> in this next third of your life. What's been going on for you there personally as you you were clear, at least in, uh, in um, the last patrol that you were done with war reporting and that identity of things? And so that can be a huge loss for men when they lose that professional, let's say, identity and step into that uncertainty. And it's like it's another initiation. And I'm curious what that's been like for you. Well, yeah, I mean, look, if you're a sort of insecure young man, as I was and as many good people are, um, and you you um, answer your own uh, insecurities by becoming really good at something, right? So you're a great athlete or you're a good war reporter uh, or you're a good soldier or whatever. You have this identity that feels um, superb and sort of masculine and assertive and impressive, and it impresses people. And girls pay attention to you because of what you are, you know, et cetera. I mean, all those things that young men look for you find you get this identity as a great athlete and oh wow this works right like awesome so then when you if you haven't addressed those really interior identity questions if you sort of, if the quick fix is becoming really good at something and impressive attention getting if that's the quick fix for your identity when you have to give that up you have to address all those issues that weren't answered right there was yeah, i knew guys who were alcoholics who joined the army who were you know sober for a year during you know when they were deployed yeah they were sober for a year they were still alcoholics as soon as they got back they resumed drinking right you're going to confront all those questions that were suspended because you put yourself in a situation that demonstrated competence and impressiveness and all those things right so when athletes retire they often have an a, you know professional athletes retire they often have an identity crisis right uh healthcare professionals you know er nurses when they retire identity soldiers you know, cops. all the cops, you know, exact firemen, right? I mean, you know, there's, I mean, I know firemen, we're like retired firemen, they hang around the firehouse, right? I mean, they're like, what am I, I'm not a fireman anymore, what am I? I don't know what I am, right? And so, um, the, you know, there, I don't think there's less of a role in this non-organic mass society, or, you know, you are, you're a respected elder of the community, you don't have to be a fireman or a soldier, you're a respected elder. We need you for your wisdom and your experience. And it's time for you to rest your weary bones. You've deserved to take a break. And maybe you can do some babysitting once in a while. You know, I mean, that's a wonderful role for older people, right? But it, that identity is a very hard thing to give up. And so for me, I mean, I, I ran my life in a very odd way. Like I didn't have children until I was in my mid-50s. Um, I'm not a war reporter. I stopped after my friend Tim was killed because I, Tim Hetherington, who I made the film Restrepo with, and he died in Mistrada, Libya, about 10 years ago during the Civil War. And after that, I saw how his death devastated everyone who loved him. I just suddenly realized, oh, my God, at a certain point, going to war as a journalist isn't heroic. It's selfish. Like, you're, you're not gambling with your life. You're gambling with the lives of everyone who loves you who's going to have to bear the burden of grief for the rest of their existence. Like, that is selfish, man. Enough, right? And um, now I have children. And, I, I, you know, I mean, forget about war reporting. I don't even want to go on a one-night business trip. You know what I mean? I, mean, I just don't want to be away from them. <laughs> you know, we have a home. Uh, we, we, I have a four and a half year old and a, and a almost two year old, two little girls. And uh, 
we live in a small apartment in New York and we don't have any screens. There's no TV. They don't have any tablets. There's no screen time, zero screen time. Uh, you know, we, what do we do? We, I play on the floor with them. I read them books. We play music. I play mute. My wife and I play music. Um, we, 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 we entertain the children. We pass the time in the ancient human way. And, and, you know, I think it's, I think it's working quite well. That's my new, that's my new identity. Right. I don't have to prove that I'm a badass. Either I, I either I prove that or failed to prove it, but that, that that those days are over, right? If I if I if I failed to prove it when I was 30, I'm not gonna prove it now at 59, right? But what I can prove now is that I'm a good citizen, I'm a good husband, I'm a good father, I'm a good member of my immediate community that I'm quite connected to. We live in a sort of mixed income neighborhood where personal, you know, like personal connections on the street are extremely important, friendships are extremely important. Um, I'm a good member of all of those groups and, you know, it's way more meaningful than being a war, war reporter. It's the culmination of my life. Yeah. I, I, I love this, this idea of what if there is nothing to prove? And that's a really challenging question to lean into, but what, how would we live our lives if there was nothing to prove? And it, it really kicks us into a big, a big vague area, but it does help us come back to, well, what would I do that it's enjoyable, that is meaningful and not necessarily like what's my score on this, on this board. And it sounds like if we don't start to answer those deeper questions, then life is always going to be this pissing match. Am I enough? Am I enough? And so at whatever stage we are at, we sell our company or we leave the firehouse or whatever it might be, we're still going to be confronted with that insecurity of, am I still enough, uh, without this, this particular thing. And so it, it sounds like there's an opportunity for us here to, discover who we are beyond that, beyond that identity. Like that is part of me, but it doesn't have to be all of me. Well, I, you know, let me say that wanting to prove yourself, and I think it's equally true for men and for women in different, in different ways, wanting to prove yourself when you're a teenager or, you know, in your early twenties is entirely healthy and important and good. And what's unhealthy is carrying that mindset on um, into adulthood and even into midlife. Uh, and using substitute um, sort of substitute currencies for maturity and competence, right? Like, what do you mean by that? Substitute currencies, money, status, the car you drive, the clothes you wear, that kind of thing. Those are substitutions for for actual um, honor and competence, right? They're symbolize, they're signifiers, and there's, mm -hmm. there's lots of very wealthy people that just inherited it, right? Like, it doesn't mean shit, really. Um, and even if you earn it all yourself, it still doesn't necessarily really mean anything. You, you, you could be very, very wealthy and very good at the sort of game of business and be an utterly amoral person with no sense of civic duty, you know, no sense of honor and dignity within your community, you know, blah, blah, blah. Like who would never, never risk their lives on a front line for their family, for their neighborhood or for their nation. Right. And, you know, I think one of the ways, a very, very good way of picking good leaders is to, and this is, this is, you know, asexual, right? This applies equally to men and women, but a very good way to pick good leaders to ask yourself, would this person, uh, would, would this person literally make sacrifices for, for us, for us, we, the people, would this leader, would they die for us? Would this person risk their lives, their life for our collective welfare for this nation? Uh, very, very few people pass that test. And, uh, you know, I think it was, uh, it was pretty clear. I don't think Bill Clinton would have passed it. 
right? He was pretty brilliant, brilliant man, right? I, I met him once. I really liked him. So I have lots of good things to say about Bill Clinton. But yeah, I think he was pretty sort of ego-driven, self-centered person, right? And, and you know, likewise, Donald Trump, like, forget it. You think he would die for anybody else? I, I, you know what I mean? Like, I forget it. He's just not that kind of person. If that doesn't bother you, then great, vote for him. But I think a very good way to choose competent leaders is to ask who who's willing to sacrifice themselves for the common good. I, I In my book, Freedom, I asked a sort of basic question, how do humans, how do people maintain their autonomy in the face of a more powerful foe? If you're a little tribe, how do you maintain your freedom in the face of a bigger tribe that wants to dominate you, right? Humans can do that. No other animal species does the smaller guy win, right? The smaller group win. In humans, they can. And one of, so I looked at the, the common denominators in successful underdog groups, right? And one of the most important common denominators, one was in, in, uh, um, incorporating women into the revolution, into the insurgency, into the labor protest, labor, labor movement, into, you know, et cetera. Incorporating women, right? If you don't do that, you're probably dead in the water. But another important one was having leaders that were selfless, leaders who were literally willing to take a bullet for the people that they led. And if you had an underdog, like insurgency, an underdog group that didn't have selfless leaders, forget it. They're not winning, right? So if nations, nations like America, had leaders that were willing to sacrifice themselves for the common good, even if that just means no more insider stock trading based on knowledge that you have from being in government, right? No more, like, preferencing your own political ambitions uh, and sacrificing the interests of your party or your nation, right? Serve the group, not yourself. Like you had leaders that were like Liz Cheney. Look, I'm a Democrat. I can't imagine ever voting for Liz Cheney politically. But what she is doing right now, the sort of like political suicide that she is committing right now to stand on principle that democracy is sacred and that the Trump administration trampled the sacredness of our democratic process. Um, what she is doing is um, exactly the kind of leadership I'm talking about. We need more of those people. Okay. So here's the question. Can that leadership only exist in smaller organizations? It has our democracy gotten so big that that type of leadership will never rise to the top again. Well, I, you know, it depends what people vote for, you know, I mean, it can rise to the top if it's something we insist on. And, um, I, I mean, like I said, I, I mean, just politically, Liz Cheney and I are you know, miles apart, but you know, I think I would vote for her despite policies I don't like. If I had to, I would easily vote for her over a Democratic rival who seemed to be self-serving, right? Who was that guy? I blanked on his name. He was ran for Democratic president some years ago in 04, I think, and his, he got busted for, he was having an affair and his girlfriend got pregnant and he paid for the, I don't know, whatever, through campaign funds. What was that guy's name? He was a lawyer. Remember I that could guy's see name? his face. Yeah, I guess he, he, had, face, right? had the really, he paid the $200 haircut guy. Yeah, That's yeah, yeah good-looking guy. Yeah, the whole, the works, right? Like, right. That guy is not putting the nation first. I'm sorry. He wasn't even putting his family first. You know what I mean? Like, that's not, that's not, um, there was a, during the, uh, during the Easter rising in Ireland in 1916, that the leader, the military leader of the Irish rebels in Dublin was a man named Conley, right? And the big problem the rebels had was dragging Conley out of the line of gunfire because he kept, you know, going to the forward position, scouting like attack routes and stuff and kept getting shot. And they were they're like, sir, you gotta protect yourself, we need you, right? That's a leader. He took two bullets, 
over the course of a week of combat, when the Brits finally caught him, they, 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 he couldn't even stand because he was so badly wounded. They carried him out to a courtyard, the Stonebreaker's yard in the prison in Dublin, and sat him, tied him to a chair and shot him in the chest. That's and how broke, he and broke the chair, too. Broke, right? They busted the chair apart. That's, that's right. That's leadership. I mean, the willingness to do that is leadership. Everything else is opportunism. And I would say that describes probably 90% of uh, our Congress and White House leadership. So if we were to, I want to help kind of boil this down and make it as simple as possible. It sounds like we, we can shift the question from what's in it for me or how do I cover my ass to how can I serve? What's the question that would be more of an orienting thing when you've been around leaders that have been willing to literally die, not just, oh, I'll give up some money or I might lose an opportunity, but guys that were really willing to die that day by choosing to go on patrol, whatever it might've been. What did you see as the orienting principle or the question that they were living into? Look, if you feel like you're part of a group and a group of people that um, you identify with, you don't have to love all of them, but you're like, oh, this is me. I am, I am in this group. I am of this tribe, right? Like, you, there isn't even a question of like, do I risk my life or not with this group? Like, it's not even a question. If you're not willing to risk your life, you're not in the group, right? So I looked at a, um, my, again, in my book, Freedom, I looked at a, a, um, a, a street gang named the Vice Lords in Chicago in the mid-1960s, very violent era. Um, and, uh, and the Vice Lords organized themselves to protect those young African-American men, very poor, who organized themselves to protect themselves from the predations of other street gangs, right? And the one definition of being a Vice Lord is if you see another Vice Lord in trouble, you run towards him to help, no matter what the odds, right? 20 to one. You go there and you make those odds 20 to two. And if you don't do that, you're not a vice lord. You know what the punishment is? They would take you, the vice lords, after the fracas or whatever, they would take you. They would put you in a car. They would drive you to the middle of the territory of the rival gang. And they would just make you get out of the car and walk home. You're not one of us. You're not willing to risk yourself for us. Then you're not one of us. Then you don't get our protection. Walk home. See how that works for you, right? So... You know, what I would say is that in, in, in this context, there are very few, few circumstances um, where things are that raw, that dangerous, that clear cut as being a platoon in combat or in the vice lords. Like, so what do you do if you just live in an American suburb, perfectly nice place to live, but you're not, the stakes are not life and death. How do you, how do you identify the feeling of, of worthiness and like being willing to sacrifice for the community? That's the problem. There is no way to prove it. There are few occasions to prove it. And then we vote for leaders. Um, we, there's very little to go on, right? Connolly would have won mayor of Dublin in a second if he'd survived the Irish, the, the, the Easter rising, right? And um, so I, you know, I don't quite know what to say other than that sense of selflessness. I think you know, humans are wired to, to, to detect very, very subtle signals and one of the signals that they are very that, that we are very tuned to is basically opportunists and freeloaders and and sort of scam art, con artists right scammers i mean we're very attuned cheaters people who cheat the system either at the top or at the bottom right um lots of very wealthy people cheat the system and we smell it we know it right but people at the bottom do too right we're human they're all across the spectrum we're all human right people in the middle do also but if we're voting on leaders you really want to ask yourself, like, regardless of their party, 
Well, I think they will put themselves, well, they put the nation before themselves. You know, that's the question you want to ask. I would vote for, I'm a Democrat. I would vote for a Republican in a heartbeat if I really thought they would put the nation before themselves. You know, I see right now, I see some Republicans, I don't even think they're putting their own party before themselves, much less the nation. It's insane, right? Plenty of Democrats the same way. It's completely disgusting. And I think there should be a new ethos, a new political ethos of that being the central question that that makes you deserving of holding office and this sort of sacred oath. And also, you know, they need to get the money out of politics. They need to they need to make it so that it's impossible for a uh, someone in Congress to use their position to make, how does Mitch McConnell have tens of millions of dollars? Can someone explain how he managed to do that? Like, even if it was technically legal, it's unseemly. You know what I mean? It just doesn't smell of democracy. It smells of corrupt, corruption and scam, and it, and it really should be avoided. And there's Democrats who are, Dianne Feinstein, likewise, there's Democrats who are just as bad at that. It sounds like we got to move from that, that question of I to we. Uh, yeah, exactly. that orientation and that that's happened. That happens when you're in Afghanistan, there's a, a strong sense of we, whereas here in our insulated world here in the, in the States, we're allowed to really galvanize ourselves as I, and well, it's not about either or, but when we lose that sense of we, yeah. because there is something that brings us together, something of real merit, uh, then we we're just allowed to run rampant as I. Well, let me say that symbolism goes a long way. Right, as the church will tell you. I mean, I'm not religious, but there's a lot of sort of symbolism in religious ceremony. It's very powerful, right? And uh, so, uh, I mean, the, the wafer is not literally the, the the flesh of Christ, but symbolically it is, and it has an it has enormous meaning for people of faith. Um, you can do things that symbolically demonstrate the fact that you're part of a greater whole, that you're part of this nation, you're part of this community, this society. There are things that sim- symbolize that, and they have value, even if they're just sort of token acts. There's three of them, all right? You have to vote. The nation needs you to vote. It needs you to vote a lot more than it needs you to join the military. We don't need that many people in the military to defend our borders. We need everyone to vote. You have to serve on jury duty. Jury duty means that one powerful person, be it a judge, a sheriff, a prosecutor, whatever it may be, cannot decide the fate of another person. It's a jury of peers. The jury is what keeps us from tyranny. Um, And then finally, donate blood. We all got blood running through us, right? I don't care whether you're rich, poor, black, white, what, I don't care what you are, it's the same blood. And if you run out of blood, you're going to need my blood. And that doesn't matter if you're a Republican and I'm a Democrat. As all soldiers know, you know, when you're bleeding out in the battlefield, it doesn't matter whose blood goes in you. You need that blood or you're going to die. A year and a half ago, I almost died. I had an undiagnosed aneurysm in my pancreatic artery, extremely rare and asymptomatic. And it ruptured without, this was years, decades in the making. It ruptured without warning. All of a sudden, my abdomen was flooded with pain. I was bleeding out into my own abdomen. You know, if you're stabbed in the stomach, the doctor knows where to look for the hole, right? They, they go in, they, they cauterize the artery, and you stop bleeding. If you have internal bleeding, they have no idea where it is. And so it's usually fatal, right? So it took them an hour and a half to get me to the hospital. I lost three quarters of my blood. I'm an atheist. 
my dead father was hovering over me, welcoming me. A big dark pit opened up underneath me. I was getting pulled into it. And the last thing I said to the doctor, who was cutting my neck open to put a line into my jugular to get enough blood into me to save me, the last thing I said to the doctor was, you got to hurry. You're losing me right now. Wow. Going. And they put 10 units in me and stabilized me and uh, worked eight hours and finally found leak. Um, I almost didn't make it through that because eventually, you know, like that kind of transfusion, like you get organ failure, all kinds of nasty things happen. But I'm, a, I'm an athletic person. I have a strong heart. I'm healthy. Like I survived it. Very few people do. And I survived it. And I survived because 10 people donated blood. They, they committed an act that demonstrated their inclusion in this nation and in the human race. Right. And now I donate blood. You can donate blood maximum every two months. And now that's what I do. I owe the universe 10 pints of blood plus one for good measure. And after that, I think I'm just going to keep right on going. So, you know, you do those three things. I promise you, you will feel like a citizen of this great nation. And with that feeling, a new way of experiencing life will open up. And, and as I've said before, um, it will probably save this nation. If enough of us do this, it will probably save this nation but I promise it will save you as a person in their lives. That's beautiful. I love the simplicity of it. And when we talk about sacrifice, it's pretty small. It's really not a lot to ask those three things to, to just really own your spot and own, own your place here in this, in this society that we're so proud of and that whether we've got, you know, we've obviously got our problems with it, but we're still on really good feet here, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you're still here and, and alive and ticking. Um, uh, Sebastian, thank you so much. Uh, really excited about your progress and uh, all the all the work that you've been doing. It's been deeply impactful for me and so many others. Uh, and yes, glad you're on this side of the earth too. Hey, thank you. I really enjoyed talking to you. If these interviews are helping you, please leave a positive review on whatever podcast app you use so that others can discover the show more easily.